Welcome to Talking in a Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Good morning, patrons. This is Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I'm here with Dr. Walter D. Greeson, Associate Professor at Monmouth University, where he specializes in the comparative economic analysis of slavery, industrialization, and suburbanization. Dr. Greeson is a prolific scholar in the field of economic history. He is the author of Suburban Erasure, How the Suburbs Ended the Civil Rights Movement in New Jersey, as well as the co-editor of The American Economy, Planning Future Cities, and Cities Imagined, the African Diaspora in Media and History. Today, I welcome Dr. Greeson as an educator. In addition to creating the Wakanda syllabus, the web-based racial violence syllabus, and the award-winning website Black Perspectives, Dr. Greeson is currently leading a very special seminar at the Library Company of Philadelphia, Designing Afrofuturism, Imagining Black Futures Through Art, History, and Literature, traces how historical African-American leaders envision the future using the library company's prodigious African-American history collections. Welcome to the library, Walter. It's great to see you, Will. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's my pleasure to have you here. So you have requested the Hampton album. Uh, What is it and why are we looking at it? So the Hampton album is a collection of 44 photographs taken in the late 1800s, right on the turn of the 20th century, by Francis B. Johnston. And this album basically documents what was happening at the Hampton Institute at the moment that African Americans are having to confront the expansion of Jim Crow segregation. And what we've really focused on here in the, at the library company in terms of the Afrofuturism seminar, the creation of a Tuskegee universe, a place of black autonomy and safety where African Americans could thrive away from the largely hostile forces of state, local government, and private industry. Hmm. So do you want to turn to a page that you think is interesting and tell us a little bit about what we're looking at? There's so much. It's just a rich treasure, this entire collection. So um, I'm stopping on pages 14 and 15. These are the types of photos I've been studying for decades now. Um, On page 14, um, the caption says, The Old Time Cabin. And it shows a what we would think of as a one-room house. Uh, the door is unhinged. It's uh, basically uh, no floor. Um, three African Americans standing outside. Another sitting on a wagon in the background, um, ready to go to town get supplies. Um, but generally, in the United States, we have forgotten the nature of rural life, hmm. particularly in the early 20th century or late 19th century. Portraits like these I love to show my students because they begin to get a sense of all of the things they take for granted in the last 20 to 30 years. Hmm. Um, There is no electricity here. There is no running water. Uh, There's actually no sign of an outhouse, which is an interesting kind of selection by the photographer. But in the photo, um, the subjects are actually posed. Um, There's an African-American woman sitting in a chair. Um, to the left of the door, a gentleman standing to her right with a derby and a formal coat, Uh, another gentleman standing probably five to six feet in front of them to the right, um, cutting wood with an axe, but uh, wearing a dress shirt and a vest, as well as his formal hat. Um, Clearly, 
positioned purposefully to communicate um, a sense of dignity, a sense of a people aspiring to greater things. Uh, the wash tub for both uh, bathing and for the laundry is to the left of the woman sitting down. So many of the artifacts are really striking here, but for me, it, it's the house itself. This would have been made by the family that resides in it. Um, they didn't have access to the kinds of housing that we see where you pay for a mortgage and there's a home <laughs> that you move into. Um, African Americans prior to 1930, for the most part, had to acquire a lot and then over time, bring whatever wood that they could find or acquire to the site and then erect a shelter by their own two hands in order to kind of have this life, particularly in these rural areas where most African-Americans live throughout the South. Um, a chimney to the end of the house is also uh, wood. Uh, this would be a violation of fire code <laughs> in most cities. But again, this this is before any of those kinds of concerns. This is a place where people are just happy to find a little space of independence where they're not living under someone's immediate su surveillance and supervision. So the old time cabin is a really rich photo and, and the book is full of them. Uh, in contrast, um, a Hampton graduate's home. So this immediately tunes me into the propagandic, propagandist use of these photographs for the publisher. Um, this is a standard built house, something that would have been built from a model in a magazine or newspaper. It looks much more familiar to the 21st century eye. Um, there are two young women with bicycles standing in the foreground, a small sapling tree to the right closest to the photographer. Um, but the house has a porch. It has uh, several finished pillars, um, well-masoned stairway going up to the front. Um, Two-level home, flat roof, brick chimney. Um, an adjacent house of slightly lesser quality in the left to, to the back, a backyard fenced off, marked as clearly middle class, if not upper class, um, that if someone attended Hampton, they would not be trapped within the environment illustrated by the previous photo of the, the old-time cabin. And so, um, no, the striking juxtaposition here tells me a great deal about what African-Americans were aspiring to and why Hampton would try and market themselves as a gateway hmm. from one life of the 19th century into a new life in the 20th. Hmm. So um, this this book seems to be a really useful uh, window into, um, what is this, 1940s, 1950s African-American history? Is it even earlier than that? Oh, no, it's earlier. It's earlier. Yeah. These are all images um, from Johnston that at the turn of the 20th century. Turn of the 20th century. But it was published in the mid-1960s, which huh. is, again, a very useful moment to say Hampton had become a place of black middle class and professional aspiration. Hmm. And so this is um, a nostalgic look back at the roots hmm. of what made something like the ambitions of the civil rights movement possible. Interesting. And for me, having written you know, Path to Freedom on, on black working the middle class life, and um, industrial segregation and suburban erasure, which are about the destruction of black institutions and the near impossibility of sustaining the dreams that, that people in these photos have, um, and me recasting them in, in the most recent book, Cities Imagined. It's seeing so many moments and the determination of purpose intersect here. But it's, it's the juxtaposition of... Black rural life in the South against the kind of modern technological living 
that comes up in these early pages. I'm looking at 16 and 17 now, and they compare a makeshift well with a bucket and a tree branch on page 16 to a mechanical pump that's installed as a well on the right on page 17 at Hampton. Hmm. I literally grew up with one of these pumps hmm. in my backyard. And so, again, just very close to home in the sense that since 1960, as much as technological advances have changed and access to better resources have changed, we're still kind of telling ourselves a lie as a society that the fundamentals of access and opportunity are fundamentally different. We're, we're engaging in the same kind of nostalgia and propaganda that the Hampton Alvin does in 1966 when we look at uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's new mm-hmm. book and talk about, oh, things are so different than they were in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, more remains the same than yeah. changes. Mm, interesting. So tonight you're leading our, our final session of Designing Afrofuturism, and I have to confess that before I asked you to lead this seminar, I didn't know the first thing about Afrofuturism. So uh, for those of us who didn't have an opportunity to register for your seminar, what is it? And what are we doing with Afrofuturism at the Library Company of Philadelphia? So Afrofuturism is a, is a convenient label that has emerged since the mid-1990s. Uh, Mark Derry used it in a critical essay to describe why African Americans did not seemingly engage more with science fiction as a genre. Hmm. Since then, um, as someone who was very much engaged with science fiction at the time that the essay was written, and especially hip-hop as a bridge to science fiction, I think that process of the mid to late 90s and and the subsequent success of Alondra Nelson, so many of the writers who have come along, I think a group like Outkast is really central Hmm. to the presentation of Afrofuturist art and music through the 90s and into the 21st century, thinking Busta Rhymes, Missy Elliott, these artists all are playing with the ideas of not being trapped with traditional representations of African-American life and culture. And so that bridge sets us up in the 21st century to begin seeing an explosion of new literature, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, of course, for me, the the heart of this is uh, Christopher Priest's reimagining of the Marvel Black Panther. Hmm. And when he begins to craft that story in 99, 2000, he is at the confluence of the African-American church, because he was a Baptist minister. He is the singular most prominent and successful person in mainstream American comics to deal with race. He and Dwayne McDuffie are comparable, but Priest was more influential from the 80s forward. And he took elements of black exploitation from the 1970s movies when Hollywood was struggling, uh, particularly Shaft, hmm. and then ran them through the lens and reimaginings of Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction, hmm. who was also playing with black exploitation tropes, to reinvent the Black Panther in a way that he hadn't been written before as part of the urban landscape in Brooklyn, New York. And it's it's early about hip-hop. Um, the initial presentation of the Dora Milaje, who will become a sensation after the film's success in 2018. All of this reflects the range and nuance of Afrofuturism from music through graphic art into literature. Afrofuturism would not exist without Octavia Butler's book. And so we've mm-hmm. been reading Parable of Talents, but 
her work in the Xenogenesis series, the Pattern Master series is genius. Ways to reimagine the biology as well as the technological capacity of African Americans that just opened up new doors for the generation that was born in the 60s, 70s, and 80s to say there's something new here. There are ways for us to express ourselves that weren't really possible before. Hmm. That um, funk artists like Parliament or um, soul artists like Earth, Wind, and Fire, they had kind of opened the door. Stevie Wonder is a seminal figure that doesn't get enough ten- attention here. But mostly folks focus on Sun Ra. Hmm. And so a lot of scholarship, Eric Steinskog, who's um, located in, I believe, Denmark, has done a lot of writing on this. John Jennings, as a graphic artist, is is the Miles Davis of artists in the Afrofuturist tradition. It's actually he and Ronaldo Anderson are leading an effort called the Black Speculative Arts Movement, hmm. a response to Sonia Sanchez and Mary Baraka and Nikki Giovanni, talking about today's artists and writers who are speaking to this. Ta-Nehisi Coates is central. Uh, we had Julian Chambliss from Michigan State at the Department of English present here at the forum at the first session. We're going to have Stanford Carpenter do a talk this evening. He is in uh, anthropology. He's worked out of Chicago State, the Institute for Comics. And so these folks, I mentioned Alondra Nelson, Ruha Benjamin has hmm. an extraordinary, has two extraordinary books on race and technology that are coming out in the next year. Nettie, Nettie Haskins is got uh, does this work as a maker, as someone who invents new three-dimensional technologies. Yeah, it was a Mary Baraka and Nikki Giovanni in the Black Arts Movement of the 1960s that kind of is shaping what John Jennings and Ronaldo Anderson are doing in shaping a black speculative arts movement today. And they've had dozens of conferences all around the world. Nettie, Haskin, Nettie Gaskins and Ruha Benjamin are doing this work. Benjamin has two new books out on race and technology hmm. that will be available in the next, I think, three months. It's just an unreal range to gather historians creative artists, writers, programmers, people who are, who are literally hackers. There's DJ uh, Lene Denise out of London, who is continuing kind of the musical traditions that we saw with Sun Ra. The range and depth and complexity of Afrofuturism is hard to keep in one category. It is truly an interdisciplinary enterprise that begins in popular culture, in, in music and film and television, but has thoroughly transformed the role of the Black Academy and in particular has given us ways not to be trapped within the kind of stale structure of traditional academic inquiry. It lets us move across boundaries and find new answers that you can't see Hmm. unless you use multiple disciplinary tools. So when I do a book like Cities Imagined, it's immediately about graphic arts and cartography, urban design and architecture, in addition to the overall way that we look at black history and literature. So having six sets of influences kind of intersect there and have Hmm. students work in a really organic way to recreate and discover how they can imagine the world in different ways, I I hope that's been kind of the most enjoyable part of Hmm. these, these seminars for the people who could attend. But for Afrofuturism, the important thing is to understand it's a way of not just looking at the past um, and and the legitimacy of African-American history, but to meet the challenge that Octavia Butler spoke to when she started writing in the 70s, that um, there hadn't been a lot of work about imagining African-Americans and that people of African descent as part of the future, Hmm. that traditional science fiction 
was white and it was always like there are no black people here and it always was this kind of foreboding experience as a person of African descent to see these stories and say well what what happens to my kids and grandkids mm-hmm. why aren't we visible and so Afrofuturism is is a long overdue correction to believe that all of humanity has a future mm-hmm. <laughs> and we can all share and enjoy this this undiscovered terrain together yeah so Given the uh, capaciousness of the field of Afrofuturism, I guess it's unsurprising that, that this seminar has really traversed our our collection. Um, in our first session, we looked at a 16th century a book about principal navigations. And, and today we have this Hampton album in front of us, which was published in 1966, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Researchers don't tend to think about the library company in terms of our 20th century printed collections. What do we have? <laughs> oh. So it was a lot of fun looking through um, both the late 19th and early 20th century materials and the contemporary materials since World War II. I'd say the range of things. So, of course, I've mentioned to you and I do work on the T. Thomas Fortune House and Mm. look at the history of African-American struggle after the Civil War. And so that's one thing that surprised me was the range of documents that the library collection has that deal with. Reconstruction in its aftermath and the attempts mm-hmm. by African Americans to create free free spaces, places where they could have dignity and liberty. So that set the table well for me in the last session to understand how or explain how the Harlem Renaissance emerged and then where the Great Migration began. So those sources about black travel and the way that people moved from the places where they had only known sharecropping or slavery into these urban centers like Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, and even in the South, moved into places like Birmingham and Memphis and New Orleans. That process of movement and how that created new opportunities for civil rights organizations, those sources here are really, really amazing. And you get to hear the voices of people like T. Thomas Fortune speak clearly about the formation of an agenda that doesn't come to fruition for almost a full century. That then comes to bear with a work like the, the Hampton album, as uh, well as the various kind of diaries, I think you see a lot of attempts in the 1950s and 1960s to preserve black historical documents from the early 20th century and to attempt to craft at least the um, archive that would enable future historical writing. Hmm. And so the library company has a ton of resources that are really good in terms of taking rare documents of the late 19th and early 20th century and then getting them restored, kind of repaginated, and then made accessible to scholars, this first large generation of African-American scholars who are writing and publishing in the 1960s in, in response to the civil rights activities of Dr. King and Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. And so... That's what really stood out to me in terms of looking at the library company's collections online and then picking out a few items for the workshop was there's so much undiscovered work that historians have already collected that need to be better incorporated and cited and used by scholars today and Mm -hmm. in future generations. But the process of continuing remembrance and preserving documents I will say I'm eager to see, and this is one of the challenges I issue tonight, I'm eager to see what documents the library collection begins to preserve from 1985 to 2005, kind mm-hmm. of 
the documents that shape the possibilities for folks like Barack and Michelle Obama, hmm. that um, reflect the work of someone like John Lewis. Those kinds of recent histories and, and where the collection evolves so that people come here in 2050 and 2070 and see what we're doing in the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. that, that's going to be part of the closing challenge tonight. Well, I'm, I'm certainly uh, delighted then that our librarian, Jim Green, will be in attendance <laughs> to uh, face that provocation. <laughs> so alongside curating collection materials, you assign some, some fairly remarkable secondary readings, which you've alluded to, Andre Carrington's Speculative Blackness and Octavia Butler's Parable of Talents. Um, removal, to me, seems to be a recurring theme in these narratives, be it temporal in the case of Carrington's study of the cold and distant stars, or spatial, for that matter, in the case of Butler's Earth Seed. Is diaspora a precondition for the creative black reimaginings of Afrofuturism? No, no, I don't think you have to have diaspora for this kind of creative force to manifest. Um, you just look across the continent in in the wake of the moth of this great displacement of millions of Africans across the ocean. Mm-hmm. African people continue to create. And mm. as they arrive in, in Brazil and in Central America and in the Caribbean, they continue to create and, and innovate both philosophically in terms of religious expression and even architecture. So I don't think it has to be displacement to provoke new expression, but I think the crucible of the material experience of facing terrorism and violence and being confronted with massive poverty and then left vulnerable to disease for decades, even centuries on end, that does provoke movement. People will leave to find better opportunity. And mm-hmm. I think we spent a lot of time in the second meeting of talking about the Underground Railroad and mm-hmm. the misunderstandings that we believe it's always running to Canada. Well, now we have to begin to see, no, there's a lot more movement to Mexico and into the Caribbean. And so that process of moving does spin off certain kinds of themes despite or because of the kinds of foundations of where they move from. Mm-hmm. And so I, I turned to a new page in, in the book when looking at this. And so it's astonishing to see um, an astronomy lesson, um, geography and the study of the seasons, talking about the position of the earth relative to the sun. And these are all, these are all women who are studying in these classes, female teacher. In fact, the only male in the picture is, is assisting, pointing to the board. And so each of them managing their own globe, moving the globe to kind of respond. This is the type of thing that we don't talk much about. And um, for me, it's, it's profound because I don't know if I'd mentioned it before. I've been doing work on Walter McAfee, hmm. who um, bounced the first radio signal off the moon and made it possible for us to imagine that we could have satellites orbiting the Earth that would enable <laughs> more rapid communications. Um, this kind of lesson in this book speaks to what kind of training McAfee had prior to going on becoming a really prominent scientist. The facing picture of a group of young men in military uniform, learning about literature, basically being introduced to the history of the institution, basic aesthetics and poetry. The holistic mission of liberal arts education, those stories, as they show up in these photographs, shaped everything that kind of came after that through the late 20th century, and a lot of it has been lost. 
because of the loss of these kinds of institutions or their underfunding. Mm -hmm. um, I think I did talk about last time the um, Borden Manual Training Institute in New Jersey that was shut down um, right after Brown versus Board of Education because it was perceived as an inferior institution. But it was a crucial foundation for most of the black middle class that led the civil rights movement in New Jersey. So those kinds of discussions, we need, we need more. And so I was very happy that we could do this as, as a session here at the library company. But it, to me, it was, a, it was a first step. It was just a chance to kind of open a conversation rather than definitively say, this is everything we know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it, it's very much a provocation. It's an invitation to explore further. Hmm. So I want to close with a question that I actually posed to um, our other seminar leader, Dr. Carla Mulford, uh, who led our session on Benjamin Franklin and immigration. And the question is, how was teaching this seminar here at the library company different from uh, leading a graduate seminar at Monmouth? So I've had great fun um, doing this. And I, I, I love teaching, period. Even. Shows. <laughs> um, and I've been doing it a long time, man. Mm -hmm. Like You couldn't tell, but it's been more than 30 <laughs> years. And so a lot of tricks up my sleeve. And all of that goes into my joy in connecting with a new group of people and showing them things that they may not have seen before. So the graduate seminars I lead at Monmouth tend to be very focused. There's a lot of accreditation issues that have to be addressed. There are very specific skill sets that my school supervisors, my principals, my superintendents need to acquire. So as they're taking the courses, it's very particular. Like there are philosophical underpinnings, but it's a much less wide ranging conversation. So hmm. when you mentioned starting in the 16th century and, and the imaginings, European imaginings of this continent that they encounter and, and how massive it is and how impossible it seems to kind of manage contact, that sense of the foreignness of the African continent and the people who live along its West Coast, those things are really striking. And then it leads to the kinds of miscommunications, misunderstandings, the idea of what the transatlantic slave trade is and then how slavery manifests differently in different places. That entire evolution that we looked at over the course of these sessions, and then particularly the way that people of African descent reimagined the conditions that they faced to create systems of institutions that would actually support their freedom, all of that is largely unknown by the American public, let mm -hmm. alone the global public. I'll tell you, I did, um, right before I started this workshop, I went around and looked at how African diaspora history is taught institutionally around the world and if we think it's bad in the united states it's the role of african diaspora studies outside of the african african continent when you're looking in asia or europe latin america it is dismal hmm. so no i was saying african studies globally is even more marginal than african-american history black studies is in the united states and so there's so much work to do to Expand what the world understands about Africa as a continent, the people who live there, the history and culture and literature of the, of the entire place and all its variety. But then beyond that, to raise the question of African diaspora, most of what you see taught around the world is still very much like minstrelsy in the United States in the first couple decades of the 20th century. There are still these pernicious stereotypes that form the basis of what people believe to be true. Hmm. And so that's what I think 
an institution like the Library Company does by hosting a series on Afrofuturism. It allows, and we've seen from the participants, it allows students whose lives are bound up in the issues and questions that we raise a sense to say they their inquiry is legitimate, they are affirmed, and they should continue to pursue this track of study. But more importantly, that institutions should take it seriously and that it has tremendous value for people who are not of African descent. Try to deprogram and reject some of the worst ideas that have been created in the modern world. And so for me, that's how it's different. Hmm. <laughs> when I'm at Monmouth University, there's a just very narrow focus on make sure my students are prepared to take on the responsibilities they're being entrusted with. Here, it's, it's much wider in terms of the responsibility of both civic and human. It's not prescribed by an accrediting agency, although I, I would hope that at some point people do need to take on some of these questions and think about them very critically and really internalize how to escape some of the stereotypes that, that we've inherited. But um, the library company has done a tremendous service to the city of Philadelphia and really to the intellectual conversation around Afrofuturism. And I'm so grateful to you and everyone here for allowing us to do this work together. Well, Walter, it's been an honor sitting in this class and learning about Afrofuturism with you. And I'm looking forward to tonight. It's going to be a good time. All right, all. That is the end of our spring program for the podcast here. Uh, We're going to be returning in the fall. But before we do that, if you have any comments, I encourage you to reach out to me. My contact information is easily accessible on the website. When we return September, I will be joined by Dr. Scott Hearman, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Miami and the author of The Alchemy of Slavery, Human Bondage and Emancipation in the Illinois Country, 1730 to 1865. Until then.